Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, and my guest today is my friend, John Hamm. Many of you know him as Don Draper in the uh, television series, Mad Men. John and I are going to talk today about his interest in acting, his first acting job, and some of his own challenges to become an A-list actor. I hope you enjoy. Well, listen, I really appreciate you doing this, and I know you and I have been uh, sort of trying to connect in person for, what, uh, two years? Something like that, yeah. It's been yeah. a minute. Yes, definitely. I try to have uh, sort of interesting folks, uh, not just, uh, I should say, not just celebrities, but people who are doing interesting things, but also people who've had challenges in their lives and uh, uh, who've had to overcome them. And really, that's my interest. Uh, you know, what tools have you used? What were the experiences? What did it feel like? You know, I'm sure we could go on forever talking about uh, your Hollywood experience, but uh, hopefully maybe we'll get into that uh, uh, in a little while. So thanks again for being on, and uh, I appreciate it. Um, My pleasure. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, and, and uh, as I understand it, your parents divorced when you were two? Yeah, very, very young. I don't really have any any real recollection uh, of them being uh, married. I'm sure I, I was cognizant and aware, but I, I don't have any you know real remembrances of that time. Um, I always remembered my mom and dad being separate entities. Um, and obviously being a kid, you know, the second chapter of that story is that I, I then lost my mom to cancer at 10. Um, so I didn't really have a lot of, or any adult, you know, conversations with my mom about my mom and dad as a couple or as a married couple or how they met or, you know, really anything. It was all kind of secondhand at best through aunts and uncles and cousins and uh, I have two half sisters from my, my father's first marriage who had a similar uh, situation to me. Their, their mother passed away when they were very young as well from a brain aneurysm. So, you know, it's, uh, those are the hands you get, the cards you get dealt and you kind of, you know, make, make do. And it's nice to have this around Thanksgiving. In fact, I was reached out to by my, my high school that I went to back in St. Louis uh, about, you know, Thanksgiving and being thankful and grateful for, for the people in your life. And the majority of those people were, for me, were for te- were teachers. Um, and I had quite a few of them. And it's why I wanted to, after I graduated college, wanted to go back and teach at uh, the school I went to. It, it had given so much to me in a real quantifiable way. And I didn't have the the wherewithal to donate a building or anything like that at that time. But, uh, but I did, I knew I could give back some time and I knew that that would be therapeutic in some way. I knew that that would be, um, affirming, you know, it would, it would be a lot of things. It was also a paycheck, which (laughs) at, at 24 years old was not nothing. You know, it was a, it was an actual weekly paycheck that was more than I was making as a bartender or waiter, what have you. And, and it was a very worthwhile time. You know, obviously I was 24 years old. I didn't have a tremendous wealth of experience to, to offer, but I had just gotten out of college and, and had set off on trying to be an actor and was, was 
was tasked with uh, with te- teaching uh, eighth grade through eleventh grade, basically public speaking and acting and how to be uh, you know uh, interesting on stage in one way or another. Not necessarily to train people to be professional actors for sure, because very few of them ended up doing that. But uh, but it was more about you know expressing yourself and having confidence and all of those things that not just acting, but public speaking or improv or, or what have you can, can offer folks. It's a, it can be daunting for sure, but it's, it's, it's also a, a good life skill to have. When, uh, as you were saying, uh, your mother though passed when you were 10, did she share with you what was going on? I mean, were you aware or yeah, eventually, yeah, uh, it was an odd, you know, it was, I, I, this, I could have very visceral memories of, obviously, uh, I remember we were at the museum, uh, the St. Louis art museum, she and I, some weekend just doing mom and kid things. And, um, she said her stomach felt bad and she had to go to the bathroom and, you know, I was nine years old, I, whatever, go knock yourself out. I'll, I'll find something to do in a museum. And it sort of dawned on me, she'd been gone for a while. And I, you know, did that thing that kids do of like tug on somebody's arm and say, Hey, can you check in in there and see if my mom's in there? And she said, Oh, she is, she's just not feeling very well. I don't know what that means. Uh, And then, you know, less than a week later, she was in the hospital. Uh, My dad picked me up from, from school and she was, she was in the hospital and, and had been diagnosed with pretty advanced uh, stomach, liver, everything, cancer. And it was, the prognosis was colon, colon cancer as well. was not good. They took out a significant portion of her colon and put a colostomy in and all of this other sort of radical surgery and attempt to nip it in the bud. But it had, by all accounts, progressed way too far. And I came to know a lot of this a lot later in life. This was not information that was shared with me at the time for obvious reasons. Um, but I was aware of a lot of the adults in my life all of a sudden being very serious. And that was, you know, my grandfather and grandmother, my father, my aunts and uncles, everybody, it was kind of all hands on deck. Uh, So she, she went from zero to dead in about uh, three months and it was a real quick turnaround and it was a real eye opener in every way. You know, you just, you're not equipped at that age in any real way. And, and especially in St. Louis, Missouri in the seventies or early eighties, I should say, uh, you know, I was, I was given a book that said what to do when a parent dies. That was written by, you know, some psychotherapist, somebody, um, which I read and found, you know, kind of inscrutable and pedantic and not really helpful, but it was something and I can recall from back in those days of just thinking like, what's tomorrow? What's the next day? What's the next month? What's the next year? What's the future? And feeling bereft in a lot of ways, but not really having the capacity to understand it or put it into words. And, and you know, basically I just sunk myself into school and life and friends and stuff and was able to kind of focus on that as, as sort of celebrating my mom's legacy and and really trying to be a be a successful student and athlete and you know whatever was your your uh, father remarried by then or was he no he was he he never remarried he was he had sort of like 
worked through a lot of difficulties in his life and at this point was sort of between jobs and living back with his mother in his childhood home, which was this sort of grand palatial house uh, that it sort of mishavishammed at this point and kind of was a collection of stuff from a different era. Uh, and so we kind of had three generations living under one roof, which was, which was tricky, you know, and challenging. And I was living with my, my younger half sister as well. And so it was, it was just a new dynamic that was completely foreign to me and, and difficult to navigate for sure. But again, you're, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I, that I really resonated with me from your book of just kind of like, you know, we're a remarkably resilient species and if we're given the opportunity to to thrive we we generally can no matter what the uh outstanding circumstances may be uh and you know a big part of that is obviously chemical makeup and 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 uh, your your uh, environment uh, obviously uh, but uh, a big part of it too is just putting one foot in front of the other and and trying to do the best thing you know in increments and all of a sudden you look back and you find, oh my gosh, look how far I've gone. Well, I, at least from my own experience, uh, uh, it does not come without some baggage or damage. Absolutely not. <laughs> no, it's, uh, and, and you, and you ignore it at your peril. I mean, um, I, when I finally got to college kind of flamed out hard and, and I, I was an excellent student and got a scholarship to go to school and all this other stuff. And, when the sort of actual structure of, of school and life was replaced with a very unstructured collegiate environment and also mixed with girls and partying and everything else, it was, it was very easy to make the, the, the choice of least resistance, which was just, I don't need to go to class. I, I kind of know all this stuff anyway. It's freshman classes and I'll just party 24 seven. And that didn't really work. And that rolled into like kind of a, year year and a half after I went to college my my dad passed away so that was kind of a one two punch of just feeling completely unmoored and really having a, a hard time and and that's the first time uh, I got into therapy and I started talking to someone and it was it was so enlightening it was just a, somebody who has no skin in the game other than to uh help um, you know, it's not a parent, it's not a teacher, it's not a friend, it's no one that has a, a, any kind of, uh, you know, ulterior motive or, or, or any, any kind of, uh, you know, significant perspective on it other than the, the main one, which is to help. And uh, I was prescribed, you know, some, some uh, uh, Prozac, you know, S SSIDs or whatever they call them. SSRI. And, uh, SSRI, yeah. <laughs> RFID. Too, we have we we live in we live in a language of too many acronyms at this point, but it was it was tremendously helpful. And it, you know, again, by increments. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a magic pill. You didn't take it, and all of a sudden you feel better. You take it, and you can get up in the morning. And you take it, and you think about what's happening. And, and that combined with going and talking to somebody who has the perspective on this and said could say, you know, like, hey, you missed out on a pretty big portion of being a child you actually started working the day your mom died. You were working at being whatever it is you're trying to do. And, and so when, when that work schedule lightened up, you were in child mode, play mode. And, and that's what you pretty much did. And I took that to heart and thought, okay, well, I guess I, 
I, I need to understand that and understand that there's a time for that, but also need to understand that it's that it's time to get back to work. And I and I threw myself back into school and studies, and I ended up graduating with honors and in four years, and 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 kind of got back on track, you know. And it was it was you know it it took a village. I had a lot of family friends that were able to help out and financially and and with you know transcripts and whatever the hell you needed and stuff that I wasn't equipped to, to manage at that point. And that's what parents usually do. And I just didn't have any of them. So I had, I had, uh, in loco parentis, I had a lot of uh, other folks, which was nice. Well, yeah. I mean, that really makes a huge difference versus, uh, you know, having no one you can turn to and you can certainly imagine how traumatic or challenging or, uh, difficult that can be. When you mentioned your father dying, heart attack or was it? Uh... He was a diabetic for like the last, he was diagnosed with diabetes in his 30s. He was an overweight, heavy set guy. And again, that was probably in the 60s. So you can imagine what was going on diet wise and what have you then. And he was a businessman and that came with, you know, that lifestyle. And, and so he got diagnosed with diabetes, was, was uh, you know, on insulin twice a day, every, every day for the rest of his life. And, and uh, so that takes its toll as well. There's a lot of kidney stuff and a lot of other stuff. He was a smoker for a long time. He had a lot of lung stuff. And basically it was just his body had, had pretty much broken down. And... Uh, by the end, he was he was older than his years, and he was in bad shape, and you know he was living in assisted living, and it was it was hard, you know. It was again, I wasn't in any place to be able to provide any kind of financial support. I wasn't in any place. My sister, it fell on my oldest sister, who had three kids and who was dealing with her own life and everything else, and and it was very very challenging. And uh, he went from from bad to to worse pretty quick as well. Uh, he was he was pretty unwell for the last probably five or six months of his life, but the last month or so was, as I gather it is with, with a lot of people, when when major systems start failing, they they tend to it's a domino effect, and and, and that doesn't end well. What uh, now? The your stepsisters though they were older, right? Yeah, half sisters. I mean, it's 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 a it's a fine distinction, but the, we had the same dad and different moms, and yeah, they're eleven and seven years older than me. Oh, so at least they were, you were 20 then? 20, yeah. I was, it was 19. My dad died on uh, January 1st, 1991. So they were probably, uh, or at least uh, uh, maybe a little bit older and more mature at that point. Too. Yeah, and they had jobs and they had careers. My, my oldest sister was a kind of a stay-at-home mom with three kids, but uh, she was married to a guy that, you know, he was a salesman and had a job you know they had income and, and you don't need much in st louis to to have a pretty comfortable life so th- they were doing okay but uh and still do still are doing okay but yeah it was obviously it's a it's a major delineation it's a major marker in your life when you lose a parent i've obviously i'm 50 years old now that was a long time ago you, you i've had many many other friends and acquaintances lose their parents in wildly different circumstances from old age from sudden death from every other way shape and form over the last 30 years and the the overriding sentiment is there's just never a good time there's never a good time to lose a parent it's it's always a a a moment that you don't forget 
And, you know, I, I saw it with my, my grandparents when they lost their child, too. There's, there's obviously, there's never a good time to lose a child. So, yeah, death is a, death is a big one. <laughs> it's, a real, uh, it's a real moment in time and a real definer of, of what's, what's coming up, what's next, what's the future. You know, it's, it's, it's everyone's first experience with permanence, I think. And for me, having that experience at 10 was a real shock. You know, I hadn't lost a pet, you know, other than a goldfish or something. It was, you know, to lose somebody that's that significant forever is, uh, is real. Well, actually, it's more impermanence. True. It's, it's both. One thing I want to go back to, and I know some has been written about this, but of course, there was this incident when you were in college with hazing, and I, I don't want to bring that up in an uncomfortable way. You know, there were comments, at least in my limited research, uh, uh, that sort of this was not a big deal, but it sounds like for the person who experienced it, it may have been a big deal. I'm sure it was. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't talk about it a lot. I, it was an isolated incident in my, when I was 19 years old, and it was part of the culture of that particular school and fraternity and all the other stuff. You know, the, the, the highlights, if you want to call them that, the, the sort of pull quotes of all of it were obviously drastically overstated. It was, it was a dark moment. And, you know, it was adjudicated, you know, I was sort of found to be really not as uh, at fault as it seemed like in the uh, retelling of it by TMZ or what have you. But, you know, when you, once, as soon as you get famous, anything that's salacious in that way becomes fodder. And, you know, I obviously feel terrible for the, for the kid that had to go through that, you know, that was... That was not great, you know, and, and it and it remains, you know, a thing. I hope it's not defining in his life. I mean, I'm sure he's moved past it as well. It's again, it's nonsense that happened when we were kids, and um, again, it certainly hasn't happened again in my life. It's not like I'm a repeat offender, but it's uh, it was a it was a tricky thing to layer into also losing my dad and you know getting kicked out of school and rebooting my academic experience all with that so was rebooting uh, or getting kicked out of school related to that yeah of course i mean i didn't you know i everybody else that was was involved in that and they were you know however many kids were lawyered up and had parents and everybody that sort of swooped in and i was defending myself so it was a very different experience for me and so it goes you know well, you know, that's in some ways that's it's interesting how if you have uh, access, whether that be financial or whatever, making mistakes can either carry a heavy cost or limited cost. Uh, you know, and I, I, unlike you, I have repeatedly made bad judgments and, <laughs> and uh, did uh, multiple stupid things, uh, of which I've paid prices in different ways. Uh, we all do eventually. I mean, it is, it, it, it carries a cost in some way, you know, whether it's psychic or, or, or karmic or however you want to put it. But it's, again, it's, it is, you ignore it at your own peril. And I had to, you know, kind of 
process it in my own time. A big part of that was, again, like I said, sort of just rebooting my life and understanding like, okay, this is not how I define myself and I'm not going to let this myself be defined in this way. I'm going to take steps to, you know, reboot and redefine myself as the person I think I am. And I think I have. This is the reality. Uh, certainly I've talked to a fair number as you have, and uh, I don't know anyone who uh, carries a, a pure slate and none of us want to uh, revisit stupid things we've done or things we're ashamed of or things, frankly, that reflect on us poorly. Uh, but it's the nature of being human. And uh, I don't think, you know, it's like uh, one event occurs and then you've had this perfect life or life of, of goodness, kindness, compassion. One event occurs either from that bad judgment or just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then everybody focuses on that as the definer of who you are. And yeah, that's kind of, that's the, that's the coin of the realm, right? Especially in a, in an internet click driven society, right? It becomes your, you know, your, your, your worst day becomes your top search hit or whatever, you know, and whatever that happens to be, like you said, if it's, wrong place, wrong time, or bad judgment, or a series of bad mistakes, what have you. Uh, it's, it is the, the, the world we live in. And yet, you know, we still, as human beings, maintain agency, and we can also say, look, I, yeah, we all make mistakes. There ain't none of us, as you say, have a clean slate. And yet, what do you do after you fuck up? Do you wallow in it? Do you blame, do you point fingers, or do you just carry on and, and try to address it and fix it and move on and not let it define you. And especially when you're, when you're, when you're an adolescent, it's not, <laughs> you know, uh, it's not always the easiest thing to do because you're not equipped. Uh, it's one thing if you're 45 years old and you mess up, you can really put that in a, in a more uh, adult space uh, and really kind of, process it and you probably by that point in your life have access to help and yet when you're when you're younger it it's a lot harder no no i mean i you know i obviously wasn't there but i i mean certainly from my own uh i won't say extensive experience but my own experience you know i i've done stupid things that i've had to sit and admit to and acknowledge and be totally embarrassed and ashamed and uh, wondering, you know, what the fuck is going on in my head when I made those decisions, right? And, uh, well, and yeah, it's the life, the life unexamined is not very, uh, is not very useful. And I think I've, that's what I think a, a lot of people get out of your book. It's certainly what I've responded to the most is, is seeing someone go through what you've gone through and seeing someone start where you started and seeing someone use these tremendous, uh, tools to to move move through those things and you know again it's not it's not avoid or ignore it's it's processing them and it's actually uh giving them their space and then healing from it and and moving on you know and 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 determining and understanding that you can determine the next step one of the things i want to ask you about is uh, how was your experience being winnie the pooh <laughs> Well, I, I wish I could show you my, my, my laptop 
desktop because I, I keep a little picture of, of me uh, as Winnie the Pooh uh, on my desktop that I check in with every now and again. For those of you who don't know the story out there, when I was in first grade, five years old, uh, I was tapped by my, my first grade teacher, Shirley Kasoy, uh, to play the lead in our grade school production of Winnie the Pooh. And uh, probably because I was as outspoken as I have been my whole life and, and, and unafraid of standing in front of people and speaking loudly, uh, she thought I'd be a good fit. And my mom went to the, you know, the craft store and bought a butterick pattern for a Winnie the Pooh costume and sewed it for me. And I belted a pillow around my belly and put the thing on and, and did my play. So it was great. It was my first, my first acting experience. I don't still have the costume, but I bet, I bet one of my aunts might, I bet it's somewhere, which would be hilarious. Cause I mean, I'm sure it's like this big. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, I was on Necker Island recently. Uh, of course, Richard Branson's Island. And I was giving actually an interesting talk on um, me, uh, meditation, psychedelics, and beyond to a group of uh, affluent people uh, in their private office had brought them there, whatever you call it, family offices. They brought this group of people together. But uh, there was a dinner that uh, 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 occurred, and you're supposed to dress in a wildlife thing. So everyone, of course, sort of cheats in the sense that uh, women wore it like a, a, a dress with a, a leopard you know, pattern on it or guys wore shirts with uh, flamingos. There's a lot something. of leeway. Yes, yes. But what I did was I actually had a costume from a few years ago that was given to me as a joke of a Care Bear. <laughs> so so <laughs> I actually Very dressed as a as a exactly, I actually dressed as a Care Bear, and there's a uh, great picture of, of uh, Richard and I walking, holding hands, with me being the Care Bear. So that was uh, it. wasn't as exciting as Winnie the Pooh, but it was. Uh, <laughs> well, but there. I do, but I do have that similar costume, body type. So. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Although probably unlike you, uh, I did not have to find a pillow. <laughs> I don't think I'd need one right now either. I just got back from Italy and New Mexico. I've been eating a lot of cheese, so I'm in good shape uh, from in the midsection. Wow, I like cheese, uh, and I like Italy. <laughs> so Where were you in Italy? <laughs> uh, we finished shooting a movie in Rome, and then uh, my girlfriend and I went down south uh, to Naples and Ischia, Amalfi, and uh, Pontelleria. So we had a little tour, which was nice. It's a nice way to end a, a, a long job. Uh, and obviously Italy is spectacular and people are nice and the food is good and the everywhere you look is beautiful. And it, it's a real good reminder of, oh, this is, this is what you get if you work really hard and make some money. Well, well, some people get that and they don't work, really work hard and they have money. <laughs> True. <laughs> But it is good to uh, have it combined with work. But uh, I've, I don't think I've ever had a bad meal uh, in Italy. Although I have to say, I was in Venice one time, and I went into the quintessential Italian pizza place, right? And uh, there was actually a Chinese immigrant who was actually working there making pizza and, of course, spoke fluent Italian. 
And it and again, it shows you your sort of biases where you're looking at this going, this seems so incorrect. But uh, of course, the pizza was delicious. And, uh, but it, 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 it was an interesting, I had to sort of process in that mind, which showed you, uh, shows you my own sort of biases and prejudices that you, uh, you don't think about but are clearly there. Um, well, we covered Winnie the Pooh. Uh, um, so you left uh, what, when you were 20 to head west? I headed west uh, when I was about 25. I graduated college when I was 23, um, went back home, waited tables, bartended, tried to kind of amass some kind of money, uh, and then taught school. And then uh, the year, I spent a year teaching school when I was 24, and then at the end of that year, they offered me a, an extension on my contract, and I thought, well, I can see doing this, and I can see really liking it because I, I, like I said, it was the school I went to. It was very meaningful to me. It's still, it's still holding. In fact, I'm sitting in a chair, a rocking chair from. Oh, is that John, John Burroughs? Burroughs? School. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it's obviously still very meaningful to me. But I thought, okay, like I, I'm not sure how many wax at this I'm going to get if I want to try to do this professionally and it did seem like one of the only things that I kept hearing I was good at and, and it and it was also a thing that I felt like well it's kind of a young man's game I should probably get out there before too long and and let's let's give it a 25 is a good round number and uh, I'll give it five years and we'll see what happens and I didn't really know anybody. I knew Paul Rudd, who was a friend of mine from from the Midwest, and and uh, and I. So I had one phone number, and I had my my mom's younger sister who lived out there, who I'd visited with my mom uh, right before she died, and then uh, I'd visited with my other aunt right after she died, and so I kind of called her and said, "Hey, would it be okay if I, you know, stayed with you for a little bit just to while I find my feet and get a job and this, that, and the other?" and she agreed to that. And so that was sort of in earnest. I just pointed my car west. I said goodbye to my, my grandparents. Um, the, the apocryphal story is that I had $150 in my, in my bank account, which I did because my grandfather gave me a check for $150. And um, a bunch of credit cards that I pretty much knew I wasn't going to be paying on time, if at all. And, um, and I headed west. Uh, and it was... I stayed with some friends on the way out and eventually got out to, to LA and similar thing of just like, okay, this is an overwhelmingly large place. This is a inscrutable business that doesn't really show itself to people that aren't familiar with it. There's no handbook. So what's the first step? And I was like, well, I guess the first step is finding a job and finding a house and doing the thing and finding an acting class and, finding people that know people and, and, uh, and that's what I did. And, um, the better part of three years of doing that enab uh, enabled me to get exactly zero jobs. I auditioned a lot. I just couldn't break through. Uh, and I'd said, okay, I'll give myself five years. I'll give myself to my 30th birthday to be independently working at this. Otherwise I'll find something else to do. And, uh, I happened to turn 30 on a, on a Hollywood, uh, movie uh, called we were soldiers and i haven't looked back i've been i've been working pretty pretty solidly ever since uh i i, I think i got my first job when i was 20 
29, 28, uh, and then those kind of rapidly turned into more jobs. And I've been incredibly lucky and fortunate, and I'm grateful for all of that every day, but I also am very aware of my diligence and hard work as well, you know, putting myself in the position to be able to find jobs as well as then having the talent or luck or however you want to define it to, to get them once I, once I got in the room. What, uh, so I know you started as Winnie the Pooh, but uh, so were you interested in, always interested in acting after that or uh, was it something that gravitated? You know, I, 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 wanted, I wanted to be a you know, professional baseball player probably for the majority of my life uh, and, and pretty, pretty quickly realized after high school that I didn't have the, the skill set for that. Um, in every way. I didn't have the talent. I didn't have the eyesight. I didn't have the work ethic. There was just, I, I liked baseball, but to be a professional baseball player, you have to eat and breathe baseball. Uh, and I, I didn't have that. Um, I still play baseball. I love it, but I, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very different <laughs> approach that I have to the game at 50 than I did at 21. Part of that was like, like I said earlier, acting was something I kept gravitating toward and like after school programs and summer programs and this that and the other it was just fun i enjoyed it uh the feedback was that i was good at it from you know whoever teachers or or directors or what have you and i thought well once i got into college and i got a scholarship to do it uh, and i kept getting good feedback and kept getting good feedback i thought well Let's give this shot at least. You know, I can always go. <laughs> my my grandfather used to say it's never too late to become an engineer, and I was like, I think it might be too late <laughs> at this point. <laughs> uh, but uh, but it, you know, it's it's true. It really is. And I've I've had uh, friends and and kids of friends and people who've have reached out to me to for advice and for next steps and how do I get into the business and what do I do and what's the best way and my advice is always very nebulous in in the sense of it's like well put yourself in position that you can you can get it and know that it's that there's a lot of factors that 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 you have no control over um and that's that's very true that's my secret agenda that's why we're doing this uh, podcast too. <laughs> <laughs> well keep that care bear out <laughs> I'm not sure if that'll help a lot but uh, uh, I'm going to send you that picture anyway. Uh, how does it feel to uh, sort of be friends with then the sexiest man alive? No? That was uh, that was an exciting uh, moment for us. We uh, all of us. I just sent you the picture of me as Winnie the Pooh, by the way. So you you know have that in your uh, in your inbox. Uh, it's you know look, Paul Paul has been working nonstop, you know, since I've really known him. And I remember meeting Paul. He was a, a friend of a friend's roommate at, at KU, Kansas University. And he had come back with this friend of ours uh, for Thanksgiving or something from college. And and that's the first time I had met him. And, and there was always something special about Paul. He's just, he's tremendously talented. He's affable. He's good looking. He's uh, bright he's a light and always has been and um you could just tell that he was he was a special guy and and he did a similar thing he he, he dropped out of college and he he went to pursue acting he just knew that's what he wanted to do and and kind of did the same thing he, he left at 22 23 moved to la uh he's a couple years older than me uh, and i remember coming out 
my junior year, senior year in college, spring break to visit him and, and our friend Preston and stayed in there, you know, crappy uh, North Hollywood apartment and got to really see L.A. as a young adult for the first time. And he was going on auditions and it was it was all very exciting. And then by the time I moved out here, he had kind of had a full-fledged career. He was working on Romeo and Juliet and, you know, Clueless, and he was on his way. So it's it's been uh, amazing to obviously watch his success and watch how he's, you know, grown, as well as all of our mutual friends. You know, it's been it's been nice that, that we have this kind of core, tight group of people and we're all successful in different ways. You know, it's it's not all of us are the sexiest man in the in the world. Or yeah, that's a that's a high bar. A is. high bar. To... <laughs> uh, there can be only one, I suppose. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, if, if if there can be only one, I'm very happy that it happened to Paul. Uh, and um, and he's having like you know he's having this kind of great moment too with with the, the Marvel stuff and and uh, and it's it's really been uh, it's really been great to watch and. It couldn't happen to a nicer person. So I'm, I'm pretty thrilled. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm only seeing it sort of from the external uh, perspective, but uh, he doesn't seem, how do I say it? You only hear about him and see him in a good light. You don't ever hear about some of the other trash that gets put out there. I mean, he just seems like a, a, a super nice guy who, yes. I'm sure he's very proud of his work, but... Uh, he seems very approachable and a nice person. Yeah, and that can kind of cut two ways too, because people think, oh, well, he's, he's you can just run up to him and you have ownership of him in some way. I mean, he's a very private guy, you know. He's he's got his friends that he's had for a long, long time, and he's a very good friend. I'll say that too, um, and a great dad and all that stuff. And he's got two great kids and a wonderful life and a beautiful wife and the whole thing. It's like, it's really nice. Paul lost his dad a few years back who I, who I'd known forever, who was an amazing guy and a similar thing. I remember saying it to him. I said, you know, it doesn't matter when it happens. There's just no good time to lose a, to lose a dad or a mom. And, uh, you know, enjoy the time that you had with him. And he, he does, he's very, uh, he has very fond remembrances of his dad, as we all do. His dad was an awesome guy. You just mentioned something that I was just going to ask you about. You said that uh, you were saying that, you know, people approach you and they think they own you or something like that. How is that? Uh, you know, I I would say I have a limited of that in my own situation, uh, certainly not in any level like you or Paul. But uh, even for me, it, it's uncomfortable sometimes. And somehow people think if you're a public figure, that gives them certain rights. And, and, and also they make assumptions about who you are, perhaps based on a character uh, uh, versus who you really are. For sure. There, I mean, you know, and again, the culture, how the culture shifted in the last 10, 15 years has really exacerbated that. I think that given the fact that there is this sort of new definition of celebrity or popularity or whatever, that that kind of uh, thrives on that availability, whether it's sharing your life on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or what have you, that has become the new kind of thing. And so I think the differentiation between the kind of older, you know, definition of celebrity, which was, oh, you, you're, you're known for your work rather than you're known for your social media 
work is interesting. You know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not here to say it's good or bad or anything else. It is what it is. Like, uh, so I think again, as an adult and as a person who works in this industry, you, it's, it's become more and more incumbent on the individual to define the terms. And so you can, uh, you know, kind of choose to your, your level of engagement with all of that stuff. And I, I've, I've chosen to have zero social media footprint. It's just not something that I seek out. It's, it feels like another account to check or another job to have. And I would rather spend my time when I'm not working, not working, <laughs> uh, <laughs> not updating my Twitter feed or what have you. And I, it, it becomes, I feel like, and I think, I think it, this is on purpose. It's, it's been sort of gamified. So it, it's, it's, it's made to give you this steady, uh, dopamine hit of, Oh, this is, this is how I feel now is related to all of this. And, and it, it's ephemeral. And I think it's, it's ultimately, uh, probably not, you know, meaningful, but, uh, here we are. So I think that, you know, we, there's a way to engage with the public. And uh, obviously again, here we are, it's, if somebody happens to catch you on a bad day or you're going through something and that that's their only experience of you, then they're going to think, Oh, well, this guy's an entitled asshole or something. Or if they have a, a, a preset opinion of you because something they read on the internet that may or may not be true or maybe half true, or, you have no control over it. So there's no, there's no way to, to really functionally engage with it other than set your own boundaries and stick to them and, you know, be, be nice enough to folks, but sometimes people are mean to you and you're just kind of like, Whoa. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, well, you know, it's, it's funny. Oftentimes people will assume I'm Mr. Compassion, right? <laughs> and, uh, you, you, you know, in some ways, it, it it limits you because you can't be a complete dick, right? <laughs> I, I, I mean, and sometimes I am a dick. Uh, <laughs> in line, we all yeah, are yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you, know, you have to be. It's it's self preservation, you know. It's, no, uh, absolutely. You know, my wife said to me one time. She said, "You're not Mr. Compassion. You're just an asshole." So, and and, and those types of comments uh, put you in your place, and you don't take yourself. Uh, too seriously, thank goodness. Two things can be true. <laughs> well, I wouldn't have said that, but okay. <laughs> it was interesting you made a comment, uh, I think at one point, that uh, you were never 18 or that people were looking for uh, people to uh, uh, hire who fell into that sort of adolescent thing or even younger, and you didn't fit in that, and you always looked older. Was that a challenge or was that just a perception and, and you still think the same thing? I mean, yeah, you, there, there's kind of the persona that you radiate, right? And uh, some people have a young face. Some people have go gray early. Some people present a more mature attitude, outlook, what have you, I guess. And I'm not, I don't know why. I just, the combination of, my face and my voice and my attitude never really presented as a high schooler. <laughs> uh, even though if I look back at pictures of me in high school, I'm like, oh, I looked like a skinny little kid, like, sure. But uh, when, I, when it came time to, you know, sort of go out for Dawson's Creek or 90210 or what have you, these teen shows that, that were very popular when I first came out here, it wasn't working. 
and so then it was like, okay, well, who do I get to play? I'm, I'm not old enough to play the dads in any of these things. And I'm kind of don't look young enough, even though I'm relatively young enough to play the other ones. And, and basically it was a waiting game. I had to wait until my look, uh, I kind of grew into my look and became uh, that person, the, the commodity and the, you know, the, the, the outward picture and the, and the role kind of started to match. And then, then I started working and, you know, and it's really hasn't, um, I, I finally found my, my niche and it just took a minute and then, you know, patience and understanding that again, it's not anything I could control. I wasn't going to be able to change the perception of what I brought to the table from an acting standpoint by putting on some, you know, cool clothes and getting a cool haircut. It just wasn't going to happen. So it was a, it was a real lesson to, to understand that like sometimes you gotta, you gotta be patient. Well, that's an interesting uh, statement, you know, it's, uh, and I'm sure this is probably true of acting or at least my impression, but almost every act, if you talk to, they'll sit there and they'll say, I knew when I was three years old, I was going to be an actor. Right. And, uh, uh, and I think it's very true of almost everyone. And it's this implication that, you know, you had some magic that allowed you to become an actor. But, you know, in that context, I, I always say, well, if you look at the millions of people who wanted to be an actor and are still waiting tables, that's the better, more correct uh, statement than I want to be an actor. And it was my desire to be an actor and, and this power that I had that radiated that allowed me to be an actor. Yeah, I forget the numbers, but the, there was a sort of famous statement back in, when I was coming up that, you know, 95% of the Screen Actors Guild that are card-carrying screen acting actors uh, don't make enough as actors to support themselves. They have, they have other, you know, sources of income. And I think that that number is probably still pretty high. There's a lot of, uh, you know, people that have fallen off on the way from here to there, for sure. I mean, when I worked waiting table, it's why I gave myself a, a five-year window. I thought, well, I don't want to be uh, treading water longer than five years. It just didn't, it didn't seem like a, a real successful, healthy way to go. And, you know, I mean, I, I loved work. I, to this day, loved waiting tables and bartending and, and being in that industry. Obviously it's very different now with COVID, but I enjoyed serving people and, and bringing them good food and, and interesting wines and drinks and whatnot, because I, I found it to be a tremendously um, healthy kind of therapeutic uh, job. You know, people are happy when they're in a restaurant nine times out of 10 and, uh, and they want to be there. They're chosen to be there. They're spending money to be there. So it's, it's your job to facilitate that. And I, I always thought, yeah, I'm having a good time too. Like I, I believe in what I'm selling and, and I'm, I'm having a good time and I'm getting paid. So those, my friend Nick Offerman quoted was his quote in his book was find something that you like to do and then find somebody stupid enough to pay you to do it. That's pretty good advice. You know? Yeah, no, it's uh, uh, I think the sad thing though sometimes is, at some point, as you're pointing out, you gave yourself five years, but you see people, you know, still trying to make it after 10, 12, 15 years, and they'll have had maybe one or two successes. They go, well, just the next one 
you know, that's going uh, to happen. Yeah, that, that part's that part's not great. And I think it's kind of how you define success. Is it is it something where is success winning winning an award? Is success being on a television show that runs? Is success being able to pay your bills? Is success being able to meet someone and have a life and have a, a, a home and a dog and a kid and you know it, it's different for everybody and and it changes as you as you grow up it certainly has for me you know I'm very very happy in my life and and I've gone through a lot of changes in my life and it's and it's at every step is kind of like okay well what is the what is the goal now you know and I don't think that that ever changes it, I don't I don't think you're just still I don't think you're, you're, you're on a never ending quest for happiness. I just think that the goalposts can move and you can say like, Oh, it's a look. Another thing that your book is very right about is understanding what you do have. Uh, it's, it's, there's nothing wrong in setting goals and, and, and hope and trying for things, but understanding what you do have while you have it is, is pretty important as well. And again, that ties in nicely with the, with the season that we're in, you know, having gratitude for what, you do have and and not having this kind of FOMO or what have you for what you don't is a, uh, is a pretty healthy first thing to think about every day. I find. No, I think you're right. I, I, I think that in my own experience, you know, I kept, you know, I had a lot of shame and insecurity and I kept thinking, well, if I just do this, this is going to take care of it. And then once I do it, I was going, well, geez, it didn't do anything. I'm not happy. If I just do this and I kept going and going, and I realized that the more I accomplished, the more miserable I was because I still felt empty. And I think that uh, at the end of the day, you have to realize, uh, I mean, there's a difference between thinking you know what will make you happy versus actually what will make you happy. And I, I, I think that's learning that takes many years. I think the other side is, I don't know about you, but I find if I really deeply reflect that I'm that same, whether it's 12 year old or 10 year old or 15 year old, looking at the world still through those eyes, even though many women have repeatedly reminded me that I'm uh, 65. <laughs> I think we're all, we all kind of freeze ourselves around 30, 32. That's, I don't, I'm 50, I turned 50 this year and I, I still, when I look in the mirror, think like, who's that old son of a bitch? You know, I, I, I don't get it. I feel like I'm 32 years old. And obviously math is a real thing. I'm not. But it's uh, it's funny that way. Like, you, you, there is that sense of just, you you have a, a sense of yourself that, that tends to be frozen. And maybe it jumps around every now and again. You know, maybe in a couple of years, I'll, I'll think back to being 50 and be like, oh, yeah, that was that, that's how it I think of myself nowadays. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I think that that's kind of universal. And I, I do think, you know, just to put a button on your other point of, you know, this idea of really understanding what makes you happy and, and, and knowing it when you have it, or at least maybe even knowing it when you've lost it to, to sort of regain it is, uh, is a wildly uh, important thing. You know, I've, I've got a lot of friends who've gone through a lot of things in their lives, success and, 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 unhappiness and, and from every place on the, on the spectrum. And, and there's always something to be, you know, learned from it, whatever it is. And it's, you know, it gets back to what we first started talking about. It's just like, 
If you're going to let it define you, then that's a rough road. If you're going to use it to help move forward, then that's, that's probably the more therapeutic way to do it. Well, as you pointed out with this uh, Thanksgiving coming up shortly, uh, having gratitude, I think, uh, is wonderful. You know, the problem, I think, for so many people is, as you were saying, you know, when you look down and you see how blessed you are compared to so many people, and, and you have this joy and thankfulness. Uh, but sadly, and, and I think this is especially common in the very affluent, is they're never looking down. They're always looking up at what they don't have. And this is a, a attachment and craving, jealousy uh, are the creators of suffering. Well, and it gets back to another point you make very beautifully of like, having compassion for fellow people is, is a big, that, that helps with that. When you understand that, that we're all in the same boat in some way. And, and I think the discourse now has sort of conflated compassion with socialism or communism in some way. And, and those are two different things. It's, you can have compassion for other people and you can give back to your community and you can be a, and the best of us do. I think that's that's what you know. We, we've we've seen it in in literature. You know, nobody wants to be Scrooge. You know, and everybody wants to sort of help. And I think we've gotten a little farther away from that just because of the the nature of of the public discourse. Uh, and I think it's it's become it's compounded on its onto itself over the last whatever 10, 20, 40 years. Because the, the larger point has been like, no, if every, you know, it's this, this Ayn Randian idea of, well, if we all were rugged individualists, then the whole thing would work. And it's, it's, that's, not, that's not what the human race is. The human race is not a, a collection of individuals. It's a, it's a society. It's a collection of societies. Has been for, since time began. And I think that that's how, in our best times, we are the most successful. If you look back at whatever era or epoch of time that you want to point to when we're being successful is when we're working together and, and holding each other in esteem in some way. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting point because sadly there's some perception by some people that the reason people are poor is because they want to be poor or that they didn't work hard enough. And, you know, the horribly sad part is that, uh, the very nature of certain ways society are structured don't allow the poor to get rich. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, there is a quote attributed to uh, uh, Steinbeck, uh, which says, the reason socialism did not work in America is because the poor had the false belief that they could be rich. And it's this sort of, rugged individualism, and if I just work hard enough, but, you know, when so many things are structurally against uh, poor individuals or, or people of color or immigrants, overcoming that barrier is so hard. Like I was saying, I mean, I haven't met a single person who says, you know, I really enjoy being poor. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Uh, and this is why, you know, I think having an understanding that uh, – a social safety net is not a bad thing. Uh, having a living wage is not a bad thing. 
and be, and uh, because all of these things empower people to thrive and reach their potential, which then makes them significant contributors to society. Yeah, and when you compound it with a with a kind of a disinformation campaign or an ignorance campaign or what have you, of people just not if if it's not part of your awareness that there are these sort of structural imbalances if that's if that's not taught or if the, the if there's some campaign against that being taught for fill in the blank of what reasons that might be i think everybody has an idea then there's really no fundamental understanding and it, and the, these ideas that oh the the poor poor are poor just because they don't work hard enough or x y and z immigrant camp uh, camp is is there because of uh, the the just that's ingrained in them as being lazy and 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 what what have you when in fact 100% of human beings want to be productive want to work want to take care of their family pay their bills have some fun have a nice meal and get up and do it again and 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 continue the cycle i i, I genuinely believe that and i think that that history bears that out and so when you when you have these really unfortunate kind of loud campaigns that say well that's not the case there's there's certain imbalances in in different uh, human beings that make them less worthy that's dehumanization at at the at the fundamental level and it's it's not helpful it's not helpful it just foments resentment and anger on both sides and and it's uh, ultimately not productive for for either side. No, absolutely not. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention, probably a little earlier, but uh, uh, so you were uh, went to rehab. Yeah, I mean, I've been very vocal in my belief that any sort of mental health check in is good. Rehab is a extreme, extreme is the wrong word, is an intense version of that where it's, you know, you, you take, you hit pause and you take a moment to reflect on what's going on. The majority of people that were in, I went in cause I was drinking too much. A lot of people in there were taking too many Xanax or taking too many pharmaceuticals. A lot of people that were there were in for PTSD for stuff that they had not processed in their lives, whether it was abuse in whatever capacity that was. So it was interesting for me and it was a nice, obviously there was a lot of extenuating circumstances in my life. And it was, again, it was a sort of a moment of, of rebooting my life and understanding that, okay, let's, let's pump the brakes on, on this direction because it's not trending in the right way and see most importantly, why it's not trending in the right way. Why is alcohol becoming a, an issue? Why? Let's ask the question why. And then let's figure out some therapies that can work to help fix those that you can use, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or they work. And it's, but they don't work if you don't know about them. And getting to know them is, is a big part of, of what rehab was to me, was checking in every day, you know, removing alcohol from the situation for a period of time and checking in every day, working out, working out my brain, talking to a therapist every day, and then really looking at these 
therapies of like, okay, how and why are you making these decisions? What's going on in your life? What needs to change? And so that was my journey through that. And, uh, and again, like I, there's a lot of ways of exploring rehab. I'm not going to sit here and tell everybody that it's a one size fits all kind of situation. There's a lot of ways people deal with sobriety. It can be good for people. It's not for everyone. It's difficult for a lot of people. I'm not a sober person. Uh, I, I took a few years off of booze and uh, I've never really been a pill guy or a drugs guy. So, but have reintroduced that into my life, you know, whatever it's a, something that I'm very aware of and, and it's, you know, part of my life. So rehab for me, which I recommend for everybody that you don't even have to have a problem. It's like a lot of ways people, I think a, a better way to look at it. But of course, again, we live in a society where it's, it's almost looked at as a punitive thing. Like, haha, you had to go to rehab where in fact it, it's more like, Oh, you get to go to rehab. Like you get to like really take a moment and really work on yourself. It's like a, it can be considered like going to a wellness spa or going to a retreat or, or what have you. Um, unfortunately our society and how we deal with anything is, is deals with more of a, a gotcha kind of mentality. Uh, and it's, and it's, as you mentioned too, sort of wrapped in this shame of I've, I've, I'm broken or I didn't do it the right way. And I think that there is something useful in, in, in kind of recalibrating that and the way we think about that. Um, because it's, it's a tremendously healthy thing to do. Well, yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Of course, there are addicts and then there are addicts, right? There are addicts who spiral so far down, they can barely make it out if they make it out. And then there's others who get it suddenly and then are able to handle it. Uh, of course, usually beneath all of this is some trauma or some event that you're, you haven't processed or haven't let go that it sits in the background. And I certainly know from my own addictive uh, patterns of behavior in the past and present even, uh, you know, I still struggle uh, myself. Um, and uh, it is hard. But I think that the other interesting thing you say is uh, it's not so much that you need rehab. It's, it's in some ways a reset or a way to get insight into yourself that allows you to understand your drivers. With professional people who do this for a living. <laughs> no, exactly. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I think that's, uh, uh, you know, really important uh, to acknowledge. I've, got, I've been able to, you know, since I went to that, that was five, six years ago, seven years ago now, I've gone, you know, through various ups and downs and this is and that's and with stress of relationships and work and what have you, but have awareness in a, in a far more present way of where my head is, what I'm responding to, why these things are becoming larger than they need to be. And I've been able to find help for that, whether it's therapy or psychopharmacology or any of the, the things that are available as tools for us to use. And, you know, I reached out to you a while back because a, a friend of mine had, had uh, committed suicide. And, you know, it was very clearly a chemically related 
situation of like bad meds mix. And obviously that the devastation left behind from something like a suicide is, is so total and so real. And, and, and the, the real work is with the people left behind, obviously, which is why I reached out to you. And by the way, the woman for whom I, I reached out has since read your book and has really found it tremendously helpful. So thank you. But, um, you know, you think like, well, that's how something like that can end up if it's not treated. And when the, when the meds get mixed up as in, in the middle of all that, that, that can be the, the real, um, spark that ends up in a, in a really terrible explosion. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's hard to imagine that somebody would get that so that lonely and feel so isolated that they would do that. Uh, of course, I, I obviously have not fortunately been in that position, and so it's you know hard to relate. But it 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 seems so painful just to imagine it. One more question, and then uh, maybe we should probably wrap this up. Maybe we can also try to wrap it up on a, on a high note here as well. Uh, so, do you think that Actors, people who go into acting, are really insecure. In some ways, that's sort of a driver to get acknowledgement uh, in some ways or, uh, you know, to feel better about themselves. And <laughs> I think those are politicians. <laughs> okay. I, th- I think dentists have certain capacities where they're, they want to be, uh, you know, paid attention to. I think we all want to be paid attention to. I don't think necessarily actors have that kind of drive any, any more so than most. Obviously some do, some are, you know, for want of a better word, addicted to the attention. Um, but I think most sort of actors who are, who are really committed to, and I hate this term, but committed to the craft are really artists. You know, they're, they're committed to the thing that they do in the, in the way that a, a violinist is committed to the thing that he does because, or she, that they do because they love what they do. I used to play the violin when I was a little kid and, and I loved it because it was like, you can make a beautiful sound out of this thing if you do it right. And if you make a bunch of beautiful sounds in a row, you make this beautiful song. Uh, and if you do with a bunch of other people, you make this beautiful concert. And it's so acting is like that. You you can't do it by yourself. If you're doing it by yourself, you're, you're just a crazy person talking to yourself. So what it does, though, is it, it, it gets back to that creating a sense of community, working together uh, and, and performing in concert, which I find I find to be uh, rewarding. Um, obviously, there is a another level of that or another layer of that that's about I don't think is purely narcissistic or anything like that but but we we do get celebrated it's not like a painter paints a painting and the and the public goes that painting is beautiful when we perform the the response if it's positive is generally like you're beautiful you're great not your performance not your talent not whatever it's you so I think that that's where it tends to get a little murky for some people. But I do also think you need a pretty healthy sense of, of uh, self to, to get into this. Because for every one person that says, you're beautiful, there's 50 that violently disagree. 
and and with the comments section in in the internet, you can certainly uh, everybody gets their their opinion. So you kind of have to grow some pretty thick rhino skin too, um, or just not engage with the comments, which is generally what I do. Well, that's probably wise it's a, and, and healthier. <laughs> uh, have you? I'm sure you've seen uh, what are they. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel mean tweets. Oh yeah, mean tweets. I've, I've participated in this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, unfortunately, uh, not everybody's uh, going to see the world through the lens you think people should see you as. Too true. Uh, you're mentioning ego, uh, of course. As a neurosurgeon, I I really haven't experienced that, but. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, when you hold somebody else's brain in your hands, you probably have a pretty healthy sense of self as well. Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, you, 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 you can't do it unless you believe you're the only guy who can do it, right? And now, of course, True. the positive aspect of that is if you save someone's life, you can then pat yourself on the back and say how wonderful you are. Uh, but then, of course, when you fail, you carry the entire burden and uh, can be uh, very hard on yourself. So, Well, I recently read about a 2,000-page book about the body. I'm fascinated by it. It was written by a guy named Bill Bryson. Oh, um, he, that's a great book. <laughs> yeah, it's a great book. But because it gets historical and it also kind of provides a, a, a you know what we know now. And what I what I really took away from it, um, among other things, but what I really was fascinated by was how much we don't know. Um, and I think you know how much lives in this idea of it's a mystery. We have theories. But it's, you know, it's, it's as, as micro as you want to get in the human body, we don't know uh, even as just as much we don't know about as macro as you want to get in the universe. Um, and I think there's a healthy kind of sensibility with that, of just understanding what we know, but understanding there's a lot that we don't know. And, you know, I've, I feel like I've said it a couple of times here, but there's, there's so much that's out of our control as, as human beings in this life that we have to understand the things that, that we do know and we do control, whether it's our, our gratitude or our happiness or our, our pets or our careers or what have you. And then, and then leave, leave a healthy amount of, of wonder to kind of figure out maybe, hey, maybe it's the generation behind me that's going to figure that out. But it's pretty exciting to know that there's still things to be discovered. No, I think that's right. And, and uh not get lost in the what we don't know, but uh, uh, or get lost in the past of what could have been, might have been, should have been, or a future which you don't know. Both of those things lead, one, to you not being present, and two, uh, to a lot of ha unhappiness. So uh, that's sort of what I try to do. And also every morning wake up with a sense of joy and awe and thankfulness. Yeah. And, uh, um, and if that's actually what... <laughs> I, just waking up, I try to make a gift, right? So, if, that, if, if that's my baseline, I'm so happy I woke up today. Everything else is irrelevant. Yeah, you're on a win if you wake up. That's good. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, listen, uh, I want to thank you for spending so much time. It's uh, really been a gift. It's my pleasure, Jim. I, I can't, can't tell you how uh, how pleased I am that uh, that I know you, and uh, and I can't uh, wait to see what the next thing brings uh, in our projects together. So. Uh, Thank you for taking the time and, and being respectful and, and uh, kind to me because uh, I think that those things tend to uh, 
pay themselves forward. Well, I'll, there was, of course, a, a, a complete subterfuge to uh, ask you how to make it in Hollywood. So that's really wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be on my podcast. <laughs> when is that going to start? Oh God, the 12th of never. Well, you know, it's so, uh, it's so funny because so many people are doing podcasts. I sit there and I go, you know, why am I doing this? But, but uh, that being said, at least the lens I look through, seems there seems to be some uh, interest in that, uh, which I'm thankful for. Plus, uh, I've been blessed to know a few people. In fact, actually, uh, I'm sure you have heard of or know Hunter Biden. Uh, I did a wonderful podcast with him. But, you know, again, uh, as you were mentioning, it's so often people look at the negative side of somebody, not who the somebody is and that they're a human being and that they've suffered and that, uh, you know, sometimes we respond in ways that are not perfect or ideal, but they allow us to survive. And then uh, hopefully we come out of it and are better people. And I think that's what any of us can hope for. I think that's right. If you, if we, you know, smarter man than me said it, but if we treat others the way we want to be treated, it would be a lot better, uh, a lot better world. Exactly. Well, listen, I hope we finally actually have dinner together. Yes. <laughs> well, it won't be till 2022 because I'm leaving, I'm leaving town uh, in a week or so to start this thing in Scotland, but unless you're in Scotland, in which case. I may be. How long are you going to be in Scotland for? Till the end of the year, and then I go back right after the holidays, so uh, for another month. Oh, wow. Well, listen, take care, my friend. Thank you so much, and a joy. We'll see you soon. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Music.